When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since memory tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Uh, yeah Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast. I am your host, Mike Cheatham, and this is episode number 113. It is December the 3rd, 2022, and the title for the episode this week is Come With Me, uh, which is a song by an artist named NECA. All right, let's... Um, Go to the um, agenda, and I'll give you a little bit more info about um, that particular title. So, uh, like I said, the the title comes from a song um, titled uh, Come With Me uh, by an African artist uh, from Nigeria, uh, Neka. And the uh, expanded lyrics that I wanted to take the title from are as follows. Come, let us be truthful, surrender our pride, admit the stains on our chest, our hands. We seek, we find, we take, we kill. Our love is hate, our smiles are fake. Take my body, take my hands, take everything you've created. Take your riches, take your money, take everything, but not my experience. No, no, you can't take my experience away. No, you can't take my soul away. No, you can't make me go astray because I know where I stand. And the reason that I wanted to use that as the title uh, for the episode this week is that there's always turmoil uh, that is swirling around. And uh, I know um, that I am not perfect and have made mistakes. And uh, because of that, uh, like the song says, you can take everything from me, but not my experience. Because my experience, I relate that as to uh, my knowledge, what I have learned. And because of that, I know who I am. I know where I stand. And uh, that can't be taken away. And so even though I do make mistakes, uh, I'm going to keep getting up and moving in the right direction because I know who I am, I know where I stand, and you can't take my experience away. All right, so what do we have on our agenda for this week? Uh, First up, no feedback, so we'll skip that segment. However, um, if you have feedback, uh, please send me an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com. Again, that email address to send feedback is feedback at rationalblackthought.com. 
Since we don't have feedback, the first segment that we will uh, go over will be what's on my mind. And I'm titling the segment what's on my mind this week, we need a manifesto. And I know a lot of times there's some negative connotation with manifesto, and I'll address that in the segment. Uh, but based upon a number of factors, I believe that we need uh, a manifesto. After that, we'll cover the news. Uh, first up in the news, um, I'm just titling this kind of like the start of a sick joke. A black anti-Semite, a white supremacist, and a failed ex-president are having dinner. Uh, so that's the title, and it's like a sick joke, and it would be funny if it weren't, uh, number one, true, and number uh, two, so dangerous. Um, after that story, I do want to cover the fact that um, uh, some Oath Keepers were convicted of sed- seditious conspiracy uh, this week, uh, which I think is a good thing. However, uh, there, uh, I, I think there's a bit, been a bit too much celebration around that. Uh, and so I want to provide my caveats to the, uh, enthusiasm that we have that, uh, justice has now been served. Uh, after that, I'm going to review kind of an odd, uh, story, or at least I found it to be a bit odd. And I'm titling it Buddhist Priest Worshipping on High. And uh, to know what I'm referring to there, you'll have to listen to the news segment. Uh, After that, I want to cover the fact that the Democrats have a new leader in the House, and he's black. So I think that's definitely a positive thing. And then lastly in the news, I want to cover a story about a bank or a a bank-adjacent institution uh, that was uh, promoted and endorsed by Candace Owens, a um, anti-black black woman, uh, and that uh, financial institution crashed and burned, which is uh, both hilarious and predictable. So that'll be the news. After that, we'll get to the segment, This Shit is for Us, and I'm just titling that uh, with some lyrics uh, from a Public Enemy song, Too Black, Too Strong. And um, after this shit is for us, it'll be Bible study with Atheist Mike. And I want to present some information kind of as a Bible trivia game uh, where I'm asking, is this in the Bible? Now, spoiler alert, uh, all of the things that I'm going to present are not in the Bible, but I'm going to ask you to be honest and let me know which of those things you thought were in the Bible uh, and then um, it's going to be kind of a game. It's going to be um, self-reported, um, uh, uh, but I will give a prize to the individual that um, uh, is the first to send me uh, that they got all that they knew that none of these items were in the in the Bible. And then that'll be it for this week's episode, and we will close it out um, with a story about. Uh, black enrollment um, uh, going in the right direction at top universities in the U.S. And uh, again, uh, that is some good news, but I'll give some caveats to that uh, closing story as well. Uh, But overall, I think it's a positive thing. So that is what we have on our agenda. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll go through the segment or get to the segment, What's on My Mind? Well, 
Welcome back. And as I mentioned in the intro, the uh, title of the segment, um, What's on My Mind This Week, is We Need a Manifesto. So you might be asking where that came from. Well, I purchased a collection of books recently, all published by the Stanford D School, and the D in the D School stands for uh, Design. Um, and the school is focused on like out of the box thinking uh, as it relates to their instruction. Um, but one of the books that caught my attention in uh, that collection uh, was uh, the one uh, that was titled um, You Need a Manifesto. Uh, and the subtitle is How to Craft Your Convictions and Put Them to Work. And one of the things that made this interesting to me is that Typically, when you hear the word manifesto, it is in conjunction with some criminally minded nut job, the Unabomber or white supremacist and other things like that. Uh, even when it is in conjunction with something more mainstream, it is typically used in when referencing uh, communism, i.e. the Communist Manifesto, which in our Western society is generally characterized as a bad thing. Uh, though I would say that the, the Communist Manifesto is not a bad thing. Um, it, it is very sound. The problem with communism isn't the manifesto, it is the delivery. That is, none of the individual countries that have implemented a communist government have did so in line, in, in alignment with the manifesto. But I digress a bit. So, uh, even though the question uh, is can we use the concept of a manifesto in a positive way? Um, and can we, and can it, can, that is, can a manifesto make it easier for, for us to articulate what we believe in, uh, and to allow us to bring about a plan of action to achieve, uh, that goal? So the book says yes. And after reading through it, um, I tend to agree. To define what we're going to talk about, I'll use uh, first, the definition of manifesto that appears in the front inside flap of the book. Quote, a modern manifesto is a statement of purpose and script for action. Your manifesto can be a compass to help you navigate the seas of change and a reminder of your agency as a creator and change maker, end quote. So in other words, a personal manifesto as it relates to this book can point you in the direction of your goals, help you to avoid obstacles, provide the steps uh, to for you to get from where you are to where you want to go, uh, and also to encourage, uh, encourage you along that path. So based on that, I would say that we can all use a manifesto. Now, before I get into the book, I want to provide the dictionary definition of a manifesto just to see how it compares or contrasts with the definition from the book. Uh, and then based on that to determine if um, uh, how we construct uh, a manifesto needs to change from what the book presented. So Merriam-Webster defines a manifesto as, quote, a written statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or view of its issuer, end quote. And I think this definition is basically assumed uh, within the book's definition, uh, and the book expands on it to include using the manifesto not only to let others know your intentions, but to help you to revise, uh, refine your intentions yourself and to stay on track in the path toward your goals. So I think we can use the book's definition uh, for the development of a manifesto. 
Now, the book presents five steps or actions uh, required to create a personal manifesto, and I will present a brief summary of each. Um, but before we get to that, I, I do want to add a qualifier just from my perspective. The book talks about creating a personal manifesto, and I am also presenting the same. But, and I've said this before, in my view, your per personal manifesto, just like your personal goals, needs to include the collective. Uh, and I view most things related to personal goals from the perspective of um, uh, Aikige. Um, if you've heard of that, it's a Japanese concept that says that our purpose in life is found at the intersection of what we love, what we're good at, what we can be paid for, and what the world needs. Now, certainly we can create a manifesto that covers the first three but with, if we don't think about what the world needs, then I don't believe that that manifesto will be effective and we will not be happy in execution uh, of that manifesto. So uh, what I am talking about is how do we build a manifesto that will uh, incorporate all of those things, what we love, what we're good at, uh, what we can be paid for and what the world needs and then use that manifesto as a basis to drive us forward to achieve goals based on all four of those things. All right, so here are the five steps um, that were uh, presented in the book. Uh, first is just commence, and uh, this is, of course, about getting started. But it is also about not waiting for more information or for a guru to come along to tell you what to do. You are the best guru for who you are and what it is you want to accomplish. You don't need to ask others to get started. Now, that isn't to say that you won't solicit feedback at some point, but it does mean that you don't have to wait for someone to give you the okay to write your own manifesto. Now, most manifestos are written to recruit others. And to the authors in this book, um, uh, the, in this case, what you should be doing is writing, writing a manifesto to recruit yourself. So we should be writing manifestos to recruit ourselves to our own cause. To identify uh, the starting point, that is the scaffolding for our manifesto, we should look at our values. That is, what is it that we say uh, we really stand for? And to a certain extent, um, at least part of a personal manifesto is our articulation of what we stand for and uh, what uh, we won't stand for. Um, and this is related to what we value. This is where we need to consider something larger than ourselves. And no, I'm not talking about a fucking higher power. I am talking about not a necessarily a purpose as in an extrinsic sense, but a purpose in an intrinsic sense. Uh, things like the legacy that we want to leave behind uh, when our physical lives are over. Now, the book suggests starting small. It says, quote, a personal manifesto can take many forms, but we're not talking about the uh, errant musings of a crackpot extremist here. You need uh, some solid advice, inspiration, and support, preferably on the pithy side. Uh, there's a reason that most manifestos are short, concise, powerful statements, or, or short, rather, concise, powerful statements create a clear image in the mind's eye, end quote. Uh, and this is even more important with our own personal manifestos because we're trying to inspire and support ourselves along 
the way, uh, and a drawn out narrative will not work, uh, and, and not do that for us. So in this step, the book provides a summary of the entire process to give you insight into all the work that will be required as you build uh, your own personal manifesto. And the book says, quote, to build your pers- your manifesto, you will, re- you will begin with a deliberate process of actively examining your values and beliefs. Once you have done this inner work, you will move outward, mindfully collecting the raw material for your manifesto in the inspiring words of others. These are the countless pieces of wisdom, statements of purpose, uh, manifestos, mantras, and memes available to you from designers, artists, writers, scientists, uh, philosophers, um, social activists, and more. Next, you will synthesize and filter this material through your own experience and for your own understanding to make it true for you. And finally, you will uh, curate this collected wisdom into an expression of your own, a living document that you can trust, test, and change. Over time, this work will teach you how to identify and merge your knowledge, feelings, and beliefs into an assured sense of self-awareness. Defining your manifesto will give you a clear understanding and crisp articulation of the goals you're moving toward, the values that drive you, and the ethics that govern the boundaries of your work, end quote. And so that was step one. Step two is to consider. And um, and it's just that. It is uh, looking at the things that you need to consider as you build your manifesto. First off, you need to know yourself. And from the book, they say, quote, to recruit yourself, you need to know yourself. A practice of self-awareness equips every maker, creator, or problem solver with an essential understanding of their own relationship with the process of getting work done. Know yourself and everything will work out better. End quote. So uh, they also say, quote, be, so before you seek inspiration for your manif- manifesto from other people, do some internal warm ups to become familiar with a few key parts of your system of moral navigation, your goals, values, ethics and biases. Um, and the author says um, that they already compare that the author says. Uh, they compared your, you should compare your manifesto to a compass. And in this landscape, you might think of the goals as your destination, values as the gas you need to get there, ethics as your steering wheel, and the, your biases as well-worn paths and ruts on the road. End quote. So setting goals is not just about making them smart. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard that fr- that uh, phrase before of smart goals. That is to the 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 mantra is that you should make all of your goals specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound. Smart. Though this framework for setting goals does work, it leaves out some important things, like for example, whether the goal is actually meaningful to you. Also, some goals new- do not need to be specific to be good manifesto material. For example, uh, a goal of being, quote, a good husband or father or uncle uh, is a great goal, but it is not specific and doesn't need to be and can still be part of your uh, manifesto. Now, though it is not in the book, I think a good way to generate the goals um, that form your destination is to use two frames of reference. The first are the, are the roles that you play in life, i.e. a spouse, a parent, an employee, etc., 
And then the second is to look at life systems, that is, the various aspects of your life, like financial, health, uh, philosophical, um, uh, personal, etc., and you should set goals for all of those uh, areas. So all of the roles that you play and for all of the uh, areas of life that impact you. So the the book says next you should align your values to your goals that uh, uh, and and you should do that from my perspective, from the goals that came from your roles and systems. As I have said before, the important thing here is not to be honest, is to be honest about your goals. And I said that in a previous episode of the podcast, or you should be honest about your values, rather. What you value is what you value. And you can't utilize, you can't let what other people value make you change what you say you value. If after reviewing your values, though, you feel that they do not represent who you really want to be, then you can set goals to change your value system. But you still need to be honest about what you value and what you don't. Now, determining your ethics will allow you to apply appropriate moderation to your value-driven goals. For example, if you have a financial goal Uh, and you value material possessions, you will need to have an ethical framework to prevent you from acting dishonestly to obtain financial success. Ethics are related to values, but they're not the same thing. Your manifesto should include your boundaries, what you will and will not do to achieve your goals. And lastly, to uh, complete the consider step, list your biases. And before you object, everyone has biases, so uh, you should not be ashamed to list those. Uh, biases are just simply preferences. They are not hard lines like values and ethics, uh, and they are, in that sense, then not must-haves, but they are things that you desire. There are many ways to achieve any goal, some you will prefer over others. This is just about... Uh, you knowing what you prefer and what you don't. All right, so step three is to collect. So you kick off the process by just getting started. That was step one. And then uh, the next step, you did a deep dive on yourself to understand your values, goals, and biases, um, and ethics as it relates to what's going to go in your manifesto. Now you are going to review the work of others to help you frame out what will be included in your manifesto, manifesto and how it will be organized. What you collect will be anything that intuitively speaks to you as manifesto material. This can be uh, other manifestos, it can be vision, mission statements, policy statements, objectives, etc. The main thing is that you gather this information from people and or organizations that you respect. You don't have to agree with everything that that group stands for, that person stands for, uh, but you should respect their point of view. Uh, if possible, uh, and this is according to the book, you should seek out the author of the material you collect and have a real conversation with them to gain further insight. So if you identify an actual manifesto that is written with someone or a um, uh, a uh, doctoral dissertation or something like that that you think would be good material, reach out to that individual and have a conversation to gain further insight into what they were talking about. And so uh, 
you should then you should then uh, uh, through though initially you should consider a wide set of information for your review. So you should be pretty wide uh, as you're gathering all of this inform- information. Anything that might be relevant to your manifesto should be included. But after that, you should filter that down to the relevant few that you really want to use as a basis for defining your manifesto. So once you have this set of material you want to uh, use um, that you believe will inform your manifesto, you should compare that material to your goals, your values, your ethics, and your biases, um, and identify what subsets of the data that you've collected fit and what does not. The objective of this step is to come up with ideas on how to move forward with your manifesto. Now, this might take some time, and that's fine. And that's uh, it, because this is about reviewing the materials to think about how they fit together and how they relate to what you want to accomplish. And then in the next step, you will organize your materials into the framework for your manifesto. And that moves us then to step four, which is the final step, and that is to curate. Or, I'm sorry, it's the penultimate state uh, uh, step since there is one after curate. So in the curate step, um, you take the material you gather uh, and all of the prior work you did, and you start to actually outline and build your manifesto. Some of the items you collected in step three will resonate uh, with you, but not be in your own words. And so you'll want to start to restructure that and rewrite it to make it your own. The goal is to take your inspiration, your hunches and aspirations and start to get them organized to represent exactly who you are and what you want uh, to achieve in life. Uh, you'll want to consider the framework uh, for your manifesto. Is it a statement? Is it a policy, a goal? Is it a vision, etc.? And you'll want to, ex- to structure your manifesto so that once it is completed, it not only expresses, um, again, like that uh, Aikiga, uh, that, uh, that intersection of, of all of those things that I talked about in the beginning, but it also informs how you will achieve um, reaching uh, that state. There, therefore, the structure that is the framework that you use will be uniquely personal. Now, you can and should look at what others have done, but the end format should be what works for you. And once you have completed the first draft of your personal manifesto, it is important to remember that it is a living document that represents who you are in a given moment of time. It may or may not be valid a week, month, or a year from now, and as your objectives, values, ethics, or biases change, or as you develop additional insight into how to achieve your goals, your manifesto will be updated. So this moves us then to the last step, which is cultivate. And it is an iterative process, and part of uh, this step is to open your manifesto up to others. Uh, this is a personal manifesto, manifesto, but, um, and as I said before, your goals should include others and even the world as a whole, including the earth. Uh, and if you have really big goals, you will not be able to achieve them on your own. So letting others uh, view your manifesto, um, and if they can relate, they can share theirs with you and together you can form an organization perhaps uh, to achieve higher goals that you can't each uh, reach as individuals. Now, this step is also about learning. Uh, 
The process of creating your personal manifesto is to drive you forward, uh, to keep you on track and to help you avoid obstacles. To do this, you will need to continually learn. The way to operationalize your manifesto is to learn uh, and learn is to experiment. You should try new things, try new uh, meeting new people in an effort to move towards your goals as outlined in your manifesto. As, and as you experience, some things will work, others won't. And if something doesn't work, analyze it to see what went wrong and make adjustments to your experiment and try again. As you are executing experiments in life based on your manifesto um, and also conducting experiments with others based on joint manifestos, you're going to receive feedback on what in your own manifesto might need to change. This process of evolving your manifesto will make it more and more effective in guiding your actions and determining your destinations. The thing about it is that it will also be fun. And you'll have a good time while changing yourself and potentially the entire world for the better. So that's it. We all need a manifesto. We need a crisp, clear document that represents who we are, what we stand for, our vision for the world and how, how we intend to achieve it. Uh, if you need more information on this process, check out the book. You need a manifesto, how to craft your convictions and put them to work. And it is uh, authored by Charlotte Burgess Auburn. Once you have your manifesto completed, uh, I would appreciate it if you share it with me. That is, if you feel comfortable doing so, and then I will share mine with you as well. Lastly, I just want to reiterate, for my purposes, this process is not just to achieve your own personal goals for your own personal benefit. This is about having a larger vision. F things like fixing climate, uh, uh, the climate uh, change, uh, ending the effects of racism, solidifying LGBTQAI plus rights, advancing critical thinking, etc. This is not about just you and you only, and it's not about me and me only. It's about what is best for the universe and what we as individuals can do to make that happen. All right, that is it for this week's segment of What's On My Mind. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll cover the news. Okay, welcome back and welcome to the news segment. So first up in the news, and I mentioned this in the intro, um, a black anti-Semite, a white supremacist, and a failed ex-president are having dinner. Now, I know that sounds like the start of a sick joke, but that's the reality of the world we live in these days. Uh, there's been a lot of blowback about the fact that Kanye West brought Nick Fuentes, a self-avowed white supremacist, to his dinner with uh, Donald Trump um, and also blowback on Trump's idiotic claim that he didn't know who uh, Fuentes was. Um, and there should be blowback on that, but there should also be some comments and some blowback on why a black man, a suspect black man for sure, but a black man would even be in league with a white supremacist. Does anyone really, uh, any, does any doubt really remain in anyone's mind that Kanye West is not 
for black people. Is there any doubt that West would sell out his own mother to be accepted by white people? West is a motherfucking fool and a goddamn sellout. He is worse than an Uncle Tom because he is getting shit for selling out black people. He's not getting any money. He's just getting a hard time. But he's selling us out anyway. I'm sure the the dinner devolved to West performing, probably giving Trump a blowjob and maybe even Fuentes as well. West on his knees begging both men for more as they thrust their dicks into his squirrel-like jowls. Now, here are some excerpts from Politico on what happened. So, former President Donald Trump hosted white nationalist and anti-Semite Nick Fuentes at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach on Tuesday night, according to multiple people familiar with the event. Fuentes, who frequently posts racist content in addition to Holocaust revisionism, and denialism, by the way, was brought as a guest of Kanye West, who, well, fuck who, what he, what he now goes by. I don't really give a fuck. In his, in a post to a social media site, Trump confirmed the gathering. Quote, this past week, Kanye West called me to have dinner at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and Trump wrote that short, that, that shortly thereafter, he unexpectedly showed up with three of his friends whom I knew nothing about. We had dinner on Tuesday evening with many members uh, present on the back patio. The dinner was quick and un- uneventful. They then left for the airport, end quote. And the article says, however uneventful the dinner was, reflects a remarkable moment in an extremely early 2024 campaign cycle. The front runner for the Republican presidential nomination, breaking bread with a man who frequently posts racist content and Holocaust revisionism. Brought there by a rapper who is launching his own presidential campaign under the shadow of his own anti-Semitic remarks. Quote, if it was any other party, breaking bread with Nick Fuentes would be uh, instantly disqualifying for Trump, said Democratic National Committee spokesperson Omar Musa. Quote, the most extreme views have found a home in today's MAGA Republican Party, end quote. Now, I say found a home. Trump is where this shit was fucking born. Hosting a bunch of racist white nationalists, including a black one, is just par for the course for fucking Trump. And as it relates to hate finding a home in the Republican Party, Vincent James, the treasurer of Fuente's hate group, had this to say, quote, Trump is still refusing at this point right now that we're recording this, refusing to disavow Nick. Can you imagine if they keep this close to the vest? All of a sudden, Trump wins, gets elected. All of a sudden, we find out Nick Fuentes is the new Stephen Miller. Nick Fuentes is the new advisor, end quote. Now, this shows that this group of ra- that the, the, this group of racists anyway see their future in a Trump win. But it is not only that. James continued, quote, We have, in fact, infiltrated the mainstream flank of the GOP. Just look at what Tucker Carlson is talking about lately. You can see which way the wind is blowing. The way that Tucker Carlson is talking right now is because the wind is blowing in that direction. The way that Charlie Kirk is talking on Twitter, the way that Matt Walsh is talking on Twitter is because they see which way the wind is blowing, end quote. And what is he talking about? Racism, anti-Semitism, and fucking Christian nationalist bullshit. White Christian nationalist hate groups are aligned with the GOP. 
They know that if the Republicans are in charge, they will be able to advance their hateful ideology throughout the country. Kanye West is a white supremacist. He should find no comfort in the black community. He should be ostracized as a pathetic race traitor that he is. All right, let's move on to the next story. So this next story is good news. But again, like I have been saying about a number of the stories that have come out recently, I think too many people are reading too much uh, positivity uh, into this. So this is about the Justice Department's uh, prosecution of the Oath Keepers for their role in attempting to overthrow the government. Now, here are some excerpts from from a political article on the topic. Quote, a jury on Tuesday convicted Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes of masterminding a plot to violently subvert the transfer of power from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, finding that Rhodes entered into a seditious conspiracy against the U.S. government. The jury also convicted Rhodes ally Kelly Miggs, leader of the Florida Oath Keepers of seditious conspiracy, but the jury acquitted three uh, co-defendants, uh, Jessica Watkins, Kenneth Harrelson, and Thomas Caldwell, of joining uh, Rhodes in that conspiracy. All five, however, were convicted on additional felony charges, including obstruction of Congress. Now, from my perspective, this is a good thing, and it is a win for the Justice Department and for justice overall. And the fact that three of the members that were not convicted of seditious conspiracy were found uh, guilty of other charges, uh, as well as uh, Stewart and and Miggs, uh, I think is a good thing. But I I just hope that... um, uh, that the uh, well also as the media has pointed out this win bolsters the government's case against other leaders of hate groups like the proud boys that are also uh being prosecuted for the same crime uh so you might ask then if this is so good and it seems like it's good from what i presented so far what's my caveat about the win Uh, It is that the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and other hate groups' message is synonymous with the Republican Party platform. If Trump wins in 2024, he will certainly pardon Stuart Rhodes. If any Republican wins in 2024, they will pardon those convicted in the January 6th attack on the Capitol because they have said that those individuals are, are political prisoners and patriots. It is good that the Justice Department went after these hate group leaders But unless they go after and convict the members of Congress and the ex-president who facilitated and led the rebellion, it will be like cutting the head off of a hydra. Another seven more fucking heads will just grow. All right, let's move to the next story. And this one I am titling Buddhist Priest Worshipping on High. Now, this story, I have to admit, surprised me a bit, though... I don't really support any religions at all. I have always said that if I were stupid enough to choose a nonsensical belief system, it would be Buddhism. But they are just as fucked up as all of the other religions, as this story now attests. So here's this story, quote, A Buddhist temple in central Thailand has been left without monks after all of its holy men failed drug tests and were defrocked, a local official said last Tuesday. Four monks, including an abbot of a temple in, in Fetchbon uh, province, uh, Bong Samphon district, tested positive for methamphetamine on Monday, 
district official Boonlert uh, uh, Tintapati told AFP. The monks have been sent to a health clinic to undergo drug rehabilitation, the official said. Quote, the temple is now empty of monks, and nearby villagers are concerned they cannot do any merit-making, end quote, he said. And merit-making involves the worshippers donating food to monks as a good deed. Boonlert said the more monks will be sent to the temple to, the, to allow the villagers to practice their religious obligations. So Thailand is a major transit uh, country for methamphetamine flooding in from Myanmar's troubled Shan State via Laos, according to the United States Office on Drugs and Crime. On the street, meth pills called Yaba sell for less than 20 baht, uh, which is their local currency, which equates to around 50 cents in U.S. dollars. Quote, meth and particularly Yaba can be easily found in every corner of Thailand. Supply is up everywhere. And at this point, a tablet is cheaper than a beer, end quote. And that was UNODC's Jeremy Douglas told the uh, Thai Inquirer. So I bet the prayers of these monks were very passionate as they were fucking high out of their minds when they were praying. And the fact that all of them were getting high lets me know that this is not an isolated incident. I'm sure if they make the other monks in the country uh, do uh, a drug test, they will all drop dirty. All right, that's it for that fucked up story. Let's move on to the next one. And this one is a bit of good news. Uh, the Democrats have a new leader and he's black. So House Democrats on last Wednesday elected a new generation of leaders to take the mantle from the three Octonagerians who have led them for two decades, installing a trio of young leaders that for the first time in congressional history includes no white men. In a display of unity after midterm elections in which they lost the House but had a stronger-than-expected showing, Democrats skipped a vote and, uh, by acclamation, elected Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York to be minority leader, making him the first black person to claim the top spot. Representative Catherine Clark of Massachusetts was elected as whip, the lead vote counter for the House Democrats, and Representative Pete Aguilar of California as the chairman of the party caucus um, in charge of messaging. So those black people and mostly black men that have been shifting to the Republican Party should take note of this. The Biden administration is one of the most diverse in history of the presidency, and now the Democrats in the House have elected a black man as a leader and a woman as another and another person of color to other leadership positions. We will be much better positioned to push for a black friendly agenda with Democrats in charge of the government than we will with a racist white Christian nationalist Republican one. So let's get on board and let's continue to vote Democratic. All right, let's move on uh, to this next story. And this is the last story for this week. And this is about a financial institution endorsed by Candace Owens. And this next story is an opinion piece, which I rarely use because I have my own opinions and I don't need uh, to report on those of others. But whenever I do use a, an opinion piece, um, as is, is it is the case here, I generally use uh, an opinion from someone black. 
So this story comes from The Root, a black online news site, uh, and um, it is really the only place that I saw this story covered at, at all, um, but admittedly I didn't really look that hard to, to find out if it was reported elsewhere. So here's the article, and it is uh, written in the first person, so it's not me talking, it is the author of the article. Quote, I can't think of a better reason for a hysterical laugh than the failure of a Candace Owens-backed startup called Glory Fi, which was marketed like a bank, but in the fine print actually said that it was, quote, a financial technology company, not a bank, end quote. So Glorify promised checking and savings accounts and debit cards for conservatives whose money, the Arthur supposes, must spend differently than everybody else's. The company raised millions in startup capital from billionaire right-winger and nut job Peter Thiel and others before it went live last September, or this past September. Now, Coming out of the article for a moment, if you don't know who Candace Owens is, then congratulations. She is a black woman Fox News personality that talks shit about black people and is as batshit crazy as fucking Herschel Walker. Probably the, the only black man that she actually praises. But anyway, I digress. Let's get back to the article. Quote, the problem is that Glorify was so concerned with pushing a, a culture wars narrative that it forgot that banks and startup mode are supposed to be focused primarily on one thing, offering attractive rates on deposits to bring in new customer accounts and to be able to expand to more products like car loans and mortgages. Instead, Glorify was too focused on convincing potential customers that by doing business there, they'd be owning the libs. Rolling, uh, Stone, uh, Rolling Stone reported on the company's insane pre-launch marketing this way, quote, pitching itself as a financial institution that allowed one to be, quote, free to celebrate your love of God and country without fear of cancellation, end quote, glorifies marketing read more like a campaign ad than an enticing APR offer on new credit cards. Highlights from the, quote, about page, end quote, included our Quote, our Bill of Rights is non-negotiable, end quote, and quote, we are one nation under God, end quote. In its short tenure, Glorify managed to launch checking and savings accounts as well as credit cards with plans to offer mortgages and insurance in a future that will no longer take place. Founder and CEO Tony Newbuyer pitched plans to offer gun owners discounts on home insurance, credit cards, and uh, on home insurance, and offer credit cards made of shell casing material, and also uh, uh, offered to, uh, or, or talked about offering assistance to paying the legal bills if their customers shot someone in self-defense. End quote. So uh, again, coming out of this article for a minute, so this bank's or, or this bank alternative, because it wasn't really a fucking bank was actually pitching murder in the disguise of a stand-your-ground law. And if, there had been, if they had been successful with that offer, then the family members of someone killed by one of their customers would have had a civil wrongful death case against these bitches anyway. Uh, and yes, that includes Ms. Owens as well. Uh, all right, sorry, another di digression. So let's get back to the article. Quote, not exactly a solid pitch for a consumer financial services when inflation and interest rate heights are in full effect. 
in the end, Glorify's pitch to customers was as ineffective and overblown as the campaigns Republicans expected to carry them to a red wave in the midterms. In politics, the right bet on or bet that voters would ignore its lack of a plan to tackle inflation or crime, the fact that it wants to ban abortion, undo affirmative action, and kill student loan forgiveness in favor of rehashed arguments of the, about the 2020 election. And in the banking business, right-wing investors thought that consumers would ignore a fundamentally flawed business plan and some horrific tales about Glorify's management team, as long as a company whispered tweet nothing's about God and guns and freedom. So people, the article says, rejected both uh, grifts and uh, Glorify's public website is now just one page filled with the salty tears of grievance and instructions for how it's few remaining customers can retrieve whatever funds they have left in their accounts. Maybe they can take those deposits, the article says, and buy more guns as Christmas gifts. For me, maybe they can buy more guns and fuck themselves in the ass with them. I'm just saying. All right, that is the end of that story, and that's the end of the news cycle this week. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to the segment, This Shit is for Us. All right, welcome back, and welcome to the segment, This Shit is for Us, where each week I, a black man, provide some information that is intended for my black brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean that if you're not black, you have to skip over it. Please listen to it. But just remember, there might be some things about it that you don't quite get. There may be some nuance that kind of uh, skips past you because, because it is a black thing. If that happens and you have questions send me an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I'll try to answer your questions. So as I mentioned in the intro, the segment uh, this week of This Shit Is For Us is titled Too Black, Too Strong. And Too Black, Too Strong uh, is a lyric from the public enemy song Bring the Noise, uh, which sampled um, some uh, a speech from Malcolm X, uh, and the the speech that they sampled was "Message to the Grassroots." The sample is related to black people winning in the world, overcoming vast odds, but still winning. And I'm going to take that message and update it a little. And I'm going to convert a strategy um, that uh, was written for and meant to be. Uh, and intended for entrepreneurs, I'm going to convert that to a framework for um, a black power initiative that I believe would make us unstoppable. Now, using this framework, uh, we will be, as the title of this segment says this week, too black and too strong to be stopped. Now, the segment of this shit is for us is going to be a bit different this week. And so generally what I talk about is, are things that are solidly within the reality that, it, that we exist in today. But I'm going to start talking about some things about the future. Um, and 
Well, and when I get into it, I'm going to be talking about technology and I'm going to be talking about technology in a way different than it is generally talked about. So let's get into it. As input into the framework this week that I want to try to build, I will convert the ideas presented in a book uh, titled Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth and Impact the World. Um, and, and as I mentioned, this book was intended for entrepreneurs, but the authors uh, Peter um, uh, da, uh, da, uh, Demandis and Stephen Coulter say that the ideas can also be used for nonprofits that are trying to make a big impact. And therefore, I believe that the ideas uh, with some modifications can also be used by us to advance the cause of black equality. The book is a bit dated. It was published in 2015 and uh Basically, its premise is that technology can be used to create exponential growth. But because it's dated, I will also need to update their technological references and uh, will do so um, through the course of the segment this week. So before we get uh, to the ideas in the book, I want to lay some foundation. So there is a quote that I like um, that I think is relevant here, and I think it will set a good uh, foundation for us. And this quote is related to three laws, and it was the three laws by Arthur C. Clarke, who was a uh, science fiction writer and futurist. And those three laws are, number one, when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. And so basically what that's saying is that someone who is uh, steeped in tradition, uh, they are going to, to talk about the things that they, only the things that they know, they're not going to venture out uh, outside of that. And therefore uh, when they say something is impossible, in most cases they're wrong. It is something that is possible. And, That'll come to play uh, in a big way in what I'm going to talk about later. So just remember that. The second law is that the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. That is basically saying that unless you are willing to attempt something that is slightly outside the bounds of what you believe to be possible, then you cannot really test the boundaries or the limits of what is, in fact, possible. You need to be trying more. And then the third law is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And so that last law, uh, the, the first one I want you to remember for later on, but the last law is what I'm primarily concerned with now. Uh, but uh, as I said, the other laws are relevant, including the second one, but the, f the first one will come into play later on. So basically, my premise is this, and it, this is what I want to talk about and what I want to take away from this book. If we can use, and by we, I'm talking about black people, if we can use cutting edge technology in our fight for justice, we will be able to produce exponential change that appears magical. We will be able to close the salary and wealth gaps in years rather than decades. One thing we have to keep in mind is that other opposing forces are also trying to use technology and they are going to use it against us. The technological divide is one of the reasons that we have not made the progress uh, that we should have should have made so far. Uh, 
And we need to continue to work on that. And one thing that, uh, that I would say about that is that we tend to be consumers of commercialized technology rather than the creators of that technology or even the first movers of created technology. Uh, that is individuals that use that new talk technology to gain an advantage before uh, its use becomes a widespread. So what I am advocating is for us to change that, for us to scour, scour the world for emerging technology that can be used in innovative ways to advance our causes. There is one area of technology that I'm going to suggest we focus on, uh, but before we get there, I want to provide some further structure uh, to what I'm suggesting. So let's review uh, a brief summary of the book. So the book is divided into three parts. And the three parts are, number one, bold technology, number two, bold mindset, and number three, bold crowd. So let's review each of those briefly. Bold technology. So in this section, the book recounts the story of the Eastman Kodak Company, a company that was founded in the late 19th century and was a behemoth well uh, or into the 21st century, but then got wiped out seemingly overnight. Kodak engineers actually developed the technology for digital photography, but they decided that the technology was decades away from being really viable. And also they decided that it would only cut into their existing chemical based photography business. So they didn't want to uh, develop it, but they didn't develop it, but others did, and it completely crushed them. And by the time they realized what was happening, it was too late and they were out of business. The book says that new technology now presents an exponential model to business growth. And that what they mean by that is rather than growth being additive, i.e. Uh, one to two to three to four, and as far as growth is concerned over time, it's multiplicative. 1 to 2 to 4 to 8 to 16, and on. So this exponential growth has been seen, has seen companies grow from zero to unicorn, that is a billion dollars in revenue, in a matter of months rather than decades as it happened in the past. And I believe that this exponential capability of technology can also be applied to non-money-making enterprises and it would allow us to achieve the same kind of exponential progress um, in the area of social, social justice so that we can make in decades the kind of progress that took us 200 years to make in the past. So this section of the book presents a model of how uh, the, the, the technology uh, is able to provide this exponential growth. So for, it says that the, the technology goes through a cycle. First, digitization. That is reformatting products to a digital form. Uh, and so the authors say that that leads to deception. Uh, after, when products are first digitized, like in the case of Kodak, when the, when it went from a physical and chemical based process for producing photography to a digital one, there was deception. Kodak didn't understand the exponential nature uh, of that change. And so uh, that's, uh, that is why digitization leads to deception because the changes go unnoticed because initially they are small. 
And as the example of Kodak that is in the book, uh, the first, uh, uh, the first digital camera that was produced by Kodak, uh, had a, uh, zero, uh, a 0.05 megapixels. And the engineer was asked what it would take in order for, um, that to produce something that could actually compete against them. And it was a, it was a million times more megapixels than that. And they thought that that would take forever, but it didn't. So after deception, what happens is because, because the digitization is exponential and the deception means that it's not really, uh, not the, that the, that the traditional society doesn't see it happening. Once they do see it, it becomes disruptive. That is, it changes the product structure. In a Kodak example, example, digital for photography grew to disrupt and kill Kodak's business because nobody needed a physical camera camera anymore. They had their cell phones to do that, and they no longer needed to take uh, a film uh, to um, uh, the the uh, uh, drugstore or some other Photoshop to have it developed. They could see it instantaneously. They could see which ones they wanted to keep and which ones they wanted to delete. So after things are disruptive, then that leads to demonetization. That is that business business models emerge that do not require making money from the product. And uh, so uh, that is, for example, uh, with with Kodak, it's like no one is making money now from uh, from taking pictures because there's no process required in order to to do that. But there are uh, things like Instagram, et cetera, that are making money from those photographs, even though they aren't charging the individuals to post their photographs on their site. So after demonetization, that leads to dematerialization. That is, the physical products disappear completely, which then leads to uh, democratization, which I think is a main uh, a main driver for us to be to to consider. And that is when the cost drop drops so low that anyone can now produce what was once only available to a small, uh, rarefied few to produce. And um, and I think, for example, we can look at things like um, uh, like the 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 um, uh, in, in the content producers uh, on social media. Now they can make millions of dollars a year uh, when before it would have taken someone with um, uh, a a lot of infrastructure to be able to create that kind of content. So if we look at this and we expand our thinking, I believe that we can see how YouTube and now TikTok have disrupted the process of making like documentaries and other videos. Now, anyone with a cell phone can produce once what once uh, what once required a uh, barrier busting uh, uh, entry uh, to be able to get into it. So it was prohibitive to everybody except a small subset of society. Now, anyone can do it. Now, we uh, can uh, now we can uh, do that work ourselves if we want to. And there are content, can, uh, content creators on the web that are making millions, and we need to get a larger piece of that pie. But as I said, I'm not really talking about personal gains um, in this segment. Uh, if we look at the attack on CRT, uh, which is really attack on the truth. 
and and it's also an attack on all black people. What if we were to create K-12 content that was truthful and black positive and make it available in those states that are banning teaching the truth? Now, we cannot have it taught in the in the uh, public schools, but we could make it available for after school programs where the parents can download it for free. And we could also put it on those sites and get it monetized on social media so we would still get paid in the process. So we can counter the attack on CRT by providing black positive, truthful content uh, available to parents to have their their children watch and learn uh, and and have an education program. And we can post it on YouTube and TikTok and other platforms and get paid for it. All right. So let's get back to the book. The authors talk about the main that the main trait that differentiates hyper successful leaders uh, from those that lag behind. And they say that that trait was the ability to see the future. It is not to think that the level of success not to think at the level of success that you have today, uh, because that isn't sufficient uh, for survival, let alone uh, even uh, uh, thriving in the future. In the black community, we have been using the same strategies for centuries, protesting, boycotts, petitions, etc. And some of them worked some of the time. But that does not mean they are working today. And it definitely doesn't mean that they will work tomorrow. We need to see ahead and we need to think about how we can use emerging technology to advance our cause. So the next um, uh, of the the uh, uh, three uh, parts of the book is moves on to bold mindset, and this is primarily about out of the box thinking. The book reviews the uh, creation of the Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin, and uh, fr- and and I took from the internet that the name uh, was taken from the Skunk Oil Factory in the comic strip Lil Abner. Uh, and the designation skunk works or uh, is widely used in business, engineering and technical fields to describe a group within an organization given a high degree of autonomy and unhampered by bureaucracy with the task of working on advanced or secret projects. And so what I'm proposing is that we need a black skunk works. And this is, uh, according to the book, the foundation of having a bold mindset. It's about giving smart people the ability to try to create the impossible without burdening them with the traditional constraints of management. We need to create a black uh, social justice skunk works to allow our best thinkers to come up with ways that we can use technology to fight for equality, civil rights, and for human rights. The book then goes on to view, to review the stories of some of the people that the authors say exemplify a bold mindset. Some of them are, quite frankly, not the role models that we need. For example, one of the individuals profiled is Elon Musk. And though he purchased the ideas of others to create Tesla and SpaceX uh, and has now uh, purchased uh, Twitter, for the most part, he's a racist piece of shit that is now burning Twitter to the ground. Uh, that being said, we need to identify black thinkers that have our best interests at heart and then give them the resources they need to create on our behalf. And that leads us to the third and final uh, part of the book, and that's bold, the bold crowd. 
So this part of the book has three subsets, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, and building communities. Crowdsourcing is about finding the people to build the technology that you need, mainly using freelancers. And I have used freelancers for a number of projects myself, and you can really get very talented people for little, very little money. Uh, one of the things that I've been looking into but haven't really pulled the trigger on uh, yet is uh, potentially hiring a virtual, uh, a virtual private assistance, a VPA. Um, these are people that can work from anywhere in the world and you give them access to certain systems so that they can do work for you. Uh, and they charge as little as like $5 an hour and they're very, very good. But for our purposes, what we really need to be cautious um, as we are building uh, solutions to change the world, because not everyone will be a right fit to work with us. Uh, for the most part, if we can, we should focus on hiring um, those free freelancers that are black. Um, and we need to comb through the freelance platforms and find sources that are dedicated to working on projects that enhance social justice and equality. And if we cannot find what we need on the existing platforms, we may need to create our own and then recruit skilled workers to help uh, our projects and to be a part of that platform and to be a part of our projects um, in the future. So crowdfunding, that's exactly what it sounds like. It is funding your ventures by getting the support from a vast number of people. Uh, and this is the, what is happening with um, existing platforms like uh, Indiegogo and Kickstarter. And those platforms might not work for us for the same reasons that I talked about that crowdsourcing platforms might not work for us. But if necessary, like I said about crowdsourcing, we can create our own platforms to post our projects. And of course, we will keep some things private. And then we can ask like-minded individuals to fund the projects that resonate with them as individuals. And building networks is mostly about uh, online networks, but we can take those communities offline as well. We already have a number of communities that are focused on Black causes, and our approach would be to extend those to create communities that are assisting with the ideation for projects uh, for us to undertake, identifying the individuals that are a fit to lead those kind of projects, and then also helping to crowdsource the work, fund the project, and then execute the strategy after the, the, pro the product or initiative was ready for prime time. Okay, that's the book. Now let me get to the technology that I think that we should focus on, and that is artificial intelligence, and specifically the development of a artificial general intelligence. Now, I read a book a few years ago titled Life 3.0, and it started off with a, fic uh, a fictional but reality-based scenario on what could happen uh, when the first um, artificial general intelligence was created. And in the story, in less than 30 days, that AI had taken over the world. Now, the book presented the step-by-step -step process that the AI would have to go through in order to do this, and it was very plausible. Because of this potential, there are several, uh, and mostly white men, working on creating a artificial general intelligence today, and there are some that say that it, to create that kind of an AI would be the end of the world as we know it. 
Uh, and they say that because the AI would be infinitely powerful and could not be controlled. Uh, and it, like you've seen in some sci-fi shows, would uh, start to be like Skynet and want to take over the world. Now, I don't really fall into that pessimistic camp, but I do believe that the organization that produces the first artificial general intelligence, that that artificial general intelligence would give its creator almost unlimited power. Uh, and if a black person and or group can be the first to do so, then we can dictate terms to all of the world on how to deal with us. Now, I know that that seems like science fiction, uh, and it wouldn't be easy to do, but it is possible. And uh, if you remember um, that first law that I talked about in the beginning, because there are a number of uh, scientists that are saying that it can't be done and it can't, certainly can't be done in our lifetime. Uh, but like that law said, that if you ask them uh, and the, uh, uh, these traditional uh, experienced scientists, if something, if they say something is impossible, they are almost always wrong. So it is possible and it can be done. So here's a brief excerpt from um, uh, Amplitude.com that gives some information on what a general AI would be capable of. Quote, artificial intelligence scares and intrigues us. Almost every week, there's a new AI scare on the news, like developers shutting down bots because they got too intelligent. Most of these myths about AI are a result of research misinterpreted by those outside the field. For the fundamentals of AI, feel free to read our comprehensive AI article. The greatest fear about AI is singularity, also called artificial general intelligence, a system capable of human-level thinking. According to some experts, singularity also implies machine consciousness. Regardless of whether it is conscious or not, such a machine could continuously improve itself and reach far beyond our capabilities. Even before artificial intelligence was a computer science research topic, science fiction writers like Osmoff were concerned about this and were devising mechanisms, uh, for example, Osmoff's law of robotics, to ensure benevolence of intelligent machines, end quote. The key is that a AGI, an artificial general intelligence, could learn everything that is known by every human on the face of the planet. And the, that AI could then use that knowledge to learn things that we don't know. And based on that vast knowledge and the speed at which the information could be processed, there is literally nothing that the AGI could not do. It could mimic Warren Buffett as an example in the stock market. It could create novels that are bestsellers. It could create movies that are blockbusters. It could invent new products and it could hack any system on the face of the planet, including any nuclear systems. An artificial general intelligence would be unlimited. And because I do not believe that it would achieve true consciousness, it could be controlled by the creator and therefore if the creators are us, we would be the most powerful of all the humans on the planet combined, including those, uh, all of those that ever existed. So we can't afford to only work uh, on, or we can't afford not to work on creating an artificial general intelligence. Uh, 
we cannot afford not to be in the process. Now we don't, we can't afford also to focus on that to uh, the detriment of everything else. We need to continue to work uh, within the systems that we have today and that we could work on, but we need to be in the process of trying to create an artificial general intelligence. Though many scientists believe that we are centuries away from being able to create it, they have been wrong in their predictions in the past, and some are purposely presenting a pessimistic view to keep others other than themselves from working on it. The creation of an artificial general intelligence would be the biggest achievement in the history of the planet, and it will, it, and we will all be better off if it is bl a black person and black people that create it. If white people do, just generally speaking, they will certainly destroy the planet. All right, that is it for this week's episode of This Shit Is For Us. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to Bible study with Atheist Mike. Welcome back. Welcome to Bible Study with Atheist Mike. And um, as I mentioned in the intro, for this week's segment of Bible Study with Atheist Mike, I want to present some quotes or concepts that many people think is in the Bible, uh, but they are not. And so I'm calling this week's Bible Study uh, with Atheist Mike, Is It in the Bible by the Bible Trivia Game? Now, um, what I want to do is if you, I want you to give yourselves five points for every one of these uh, questions that you, or, 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 or of these items that you knew before I said anything was not in the Bible. But I want you to take away 10 points for every one that you thought was in the Bible, um, but now based on what I presented, you know that it's, you see that it's not. And then send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com. And for the first person who uh, sends in, uh, well, I won't say the first person, but um, this next week, for the, the person who gets the highest number of points uh, based upon that model, that is five points for everyone that you already knew wasn't in the Bible, but take away 10 points if you thought it was when it's not. Uh, for this next week, the highest person that sends me their score uh, will get a prize. And I'm not going to tell you what the prize is right now. I'll tell you when you win. So I found this list on uh, Ranker.com, and here's what they had to say in the intro to the list. Quote, have you ever heard an overly zealous street preacher spouting out fiery claims in the name of God or reciting terrifying quotes that he assures you came straight from the scripture? How often have we all been guilty of taking such people at their word simply because they preceded their rants with the all too common phrase, quote, the Bible tells us whatever, end quote. The truth is, you might be surprised at the number of, quote, Bible truths floating around out there that aren't actually backed up by the Bible at all, including popular beliefs about angels. Now, here you'll find some of the most common beliefs that are falsely attributed to the Bible, 
as well as a lowdown on where they actually come from. You'll learn the truth about such things as why your uh, Christmas nativity scene may not be as true to history as you think, and what well-known phrases actually go back to famous figures like Ben Franklin and even Bono, uh, rather than biblical prophets. So, if you're ready to set the record straight on time-honored biblical lore, here's the list for you. Below, you will find nothing but the cold hard facts as to which common Christian beliefs are a bit out of stretch and which are flat out misconceptions altogether. All right, so let's get to the list. Now, I'll, I'll number them so that when you send me your email, you can let me know which uh, ones you got right and which ones you got right or wrong. All right, so let's start. Number one, baby Jesus was visited by three kings from the east. Now, I know a lot of people uh, are, are going to get this one wrong because you think that that is the case. I mean, uh, we, we've heard that, uh, we've all heard that for years. So although the Gospel of Matthew records the story of baby Jesus uh, being visited by wise men from the east, the Bible never says that they were kings. Uh, and it, it, it says that they wrote, it never says that they rode on camels or even that they, that there were three of them. The number three is often assumed by scholars due to the fact that the wise men presented Jesus with three gifts, though there is no evidence that they weren't actually presented by more than three men. Some scholars believe that the wise men were actually Babylonian magi who uh, may have been familiar with the prophecies of Daniel of the lion's den fame. You see, not only did Daniel have a way with uh, big um, uh, uh, kitties of the ferocious variety, he went on to become the chief seer and head of all the Babylonian magi during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. His prophecies in Daniel uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, laid out a timeline for the coming Messiah, which the visitors of the baby Jesus may have used to help determine when to expect him. They may have additionally been familiar with the prophecies of Balaam in Numbers uh, chapter 24, verse 17, which specifically mentions a star coming out of Jacob. But again, the Bible does not say that baby Jesus was visited uh, with uh, three king by three kings from the east, or that they were on a fucking camel. All right. Uh, now, this next one, I'm pretty sure that most people will get right, but uh, this is that Satan tempted Eve to eat an apple in the Garden of Eden. So, though the imagery of Eve falling victim to the lure of the serpent and the tasty apple uh, he enticed her to sample is almost universally familiar, the Bible never actually specifies that the fruit was an apple. In fact, Genesis uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 29 actually provides evidence that it certainly wasn't. In the passage, God specifies that it is cool for Adam and Eve to eat from any fruit that bears seeds. Although the wily serpent uh, behind Eve's downfall is often assumed to be the devil in disguise, the Bible never even actually suggests that in any way. Uh, many have read into the symbolism, but for all we know, it could have just been a super crafty snake who was randomly capable of speech. It doesn't say that it was a devil. All right. Uh, next up is, uh, and, and so I want to go back to the, to, to two. So that, that's a two part, um, uh, statement and you need to get both of them. 
So that Satan was the one that tempted Eve, and what he tempted her to do was to eat an apple. So uh, you can split it if you think if if you thought that Satan did tempt her, but you knew it wasn't an apple. Uh, but uh, you have to get both of those uh, right. That is, you had to know that both it wasn't Satan and that it wasn't an apple in order uh, to get the five points. All right, number three. December 25th is baby Jesus's birthday. Now, a lot of us should know that that's nonsense as well, but I bet a lot of us don't. So though we celebrate Jesus' birthday each year on December the 25th, it is almost unanimously accepted among biblical scholars that this was not the actual date of Christ's birth. In fact, the only clues that the Bible gives us are to the timing of the, as to the timing of the birth of Jesus, such as the fact that there were shepherds uh, living or camping in the fields with their sheep and that a national census was underway make it far more likely that he was born in the summer or the fall. So that that's number three. Number four, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute before she met Jesus. There's actually no evidence in the Bible that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute or even an adulteress. The only time she's ever mentioned before the crucifixion or resurrection of Christ is in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, when she's listed as one of Jesus' followers who has been released from the power of seven demons. It is only in later years and only in the Western church that Magdalene came to be identified as either, quote, the sinful woman of Luke 7 or who may or uh, may not have been a prostitute uh, or the is known as the adulterous woman in John 8, who Jesus saves from stoning. Uh, that she was either of these women, however, is based purely on speculation and is in no way supported by the Bible. All right, that was four. Let's move on to number five. Jesus was born in a stable. Now, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are going to get this wrong. There are only two biblical writers, Matthew and Luke, that mentioned Jesus's birth, and neither of them ever actually specified that he was born in a stable. All we really know is that when the time came for Mary to give birth, uh, which for all we know could have been weeks after the couple actually arrived in Bethlehem, there was no room in, quote, uh, and this is the, the, uh, the, the Hebrew word or Greek word, uh, katalama, um, a word that often tran- is translated to mean in, uh, but which more is more likely means guest room, end quote. We do know that Mary laid baby Jesus in a manger, uh, according to the Bible, but in the first century Judea, managers were everywhere. They could be found out on the street, in the courtyards of larger homes, and even inside the first floors of some houses where animals were sometimes brought inside at night for warmth. So uh, the Bible does not say that Jesus was born in a stable. All right, uh, number six, the Bible says that God exists in the form of the Trinity. Uh, now, I, there are probably some people that are going to get that one wrong, but most any of us that have been in church and have actually read the Bible would know that that's not true. So although the Christian concept of the Trinity or, quote, God in three persons, end quote, is an incredibly common one, it is never actually mentioned or explained in the Bible. 
though the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are mentioned, sometimes even together, such as in Matthew uh, chapter 28, verse 19, the idea that they are all the same God is left to readers to infirm from the context clues given in the Bible. Not It is not listed specifically. So there's nowhere in the Bible that the Bible says that both the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost is the same person. All right, let's go on to number seven. Uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, warns of an evil and uh, uh, evil end times figure called the Antichrist. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of you have probably seen some of these left behind John Romeo movies where uh, Jesus comes and takes away all the Christians and then the Antichrist rises up, usually a, um, a, 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 a international uh, a figure of some sort, some, some person from the European Union, uh, and that person is the Antichrist. But believe it or not, the figure of the Antichrist not only never appears in the book of Revelation, it wasn't even widely associated with the end time or the apocalypse, apocalypse until the Middle Ages. As it turns out, the term Antichrist only appears in a handful of times in the Bible in Second John verses, uh, or chapter, or Second John chapter one verse seven, and First John uh, chapter two verse eighteen, and First John uh, chapter two verse twenty-two, and First John chapter four verse three. And in those cases, it is exclusively used as a term for anyone who is literally Antichrist, like me. So in the same way that one might be anti-establishment or anti-war, that's what they were talking about. So the Antichrist is never actually presented as a single figure, but is actually meant to be more of a description of what a, a particular individual or group of people might be doing. All right, let's move on to number eight. The term, and this is the term immaculate conception, refers to Jesus's virgin birth. And so in, in order to make sure you understand what we're talking about here, because I think a lot of people are going to get this one wrong, the term immaculate conception, as you hear that, that refers to Jesus's virgin birth. Is that, is that in the Bible? The, 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 the facts are is that the two are actually separate things. The virgin birth refers to the fact that Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb without the presence of a human father. The immaculate conception refers to the idea that Mary was free from original sin when she herself conceived. So immaculate conception means that Mary was without sin when she even original sin somehow, even though supposedly in the Bible, everybody was covered by original sin, but Mary was not according to the Catholics. And that's what is meant by immaculate conception. It isn't that Mary was a virgin. All right, let's move on. And number nine is the devil's name is Lucifer. Now, I know a lot of people are going to get that wrong because uh, certainly a lot of people, uh, I mean, everybody knows that, that one of the names for, for devil, for the devil is Lucifer. But though the name Lucifer is pretty universally attributed to the devil to the point that he now even has his own self-titled TV show based on his own comic book character, the name only actually appears in the Bible once. 
It is mentioned solely in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, which reads, quote, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? End quote. In the original text, the word Lucifer meant, quote, the shining one, end quote, or the morning star, and was often used to refer to the planet Venus, which was often the first celestial body to appear in the night sky around dawn. Here, it is originally being used to refer to the king of Babylon and his ultimate fall and demise, despite having once outshone all of the kings on earth. It is not Satan or the devil. All right, let's move on to number 10. The Bible clearly states that marriage is between one man and one woman. Now, this shit has been coming up quite a bit lately, and in fact, uh, the Republicans uh, want to uh, codify that into law to say that, that because they say it's based on on the Bible. But not only does that one not appear anywhere in the Bible at all, you from what the Bible does present, you can see that there were many, many different types of marriage. And and the article that I took this from lists several. So certainly it can be one man, one woman. It could be one man and his brother's wife, uh, that, or, or his brother's widow, because the Bible says that, um, uh, that if the, uh, uh, um, a man is married to a woman and dies, then his brother has to fuck her and give her a child. There can be a man and many wives. There can be a man, many wives and concubines. There can be the rapist and his victim. There can be male soldiers and prisoners of war as and form a marriage. There can be uh, uh, a man uh, plus woman plus woman plus the woman's property. Uh, there can be, uh, and again, basically what the Bible says is that marriage isn't between one man and one woman. It is between uh, one man and multiple women. Uh, of various considerations. So that's not in the Bible. All right, going on to number 11. Were there two of every animal on Noah's Ark? Now, if you have been listening for some time, you probably um, remember me going over Noah's Ark and where I had had given you the answer to, to this one, so you may know it. So though Sunday school rooms everywhere often feature pictures of Noah ushering in two of every animal into the world, into the ark. Scripture actually specifies in Genesis chapter 7 verse 2 that Noah was to take not one but seven pairs of every clean animal in uh, in the world aboard uh, the ship. And so what exactly is a clean animal, you might ask? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 6 specifies that it's any animal with a split hoof that chews cud, such as uh, cattle, sheep, goats, and a deer. So uh, so that's not true. Uh, there wasn't two of every animal um, uh, on, on the earth that was supposed to be brought into the ark. Uh, in some of them, it was supposed to be seven. All right, let's go on to number 12. And this is God helps those that help themselves. Certainly that is, or some derivative of it is in the Bible, right? Though often widely mistaken for a Bible verse, this saying was actually popularized by Benjamin Franklin when he quoted it in Poor Richard's Almanac in 1757. 
The phrase apparently goes back even further with its first known usage originating in 16, in a 1698 article called Discourse Concerning Government by um, Algamon Sidney. So not only does the phrase never appear in the Bible, um, it is actually contradicted by quite a few verses in which God is said to help the helpless, such as in the Beatitudes, Isaiah 25, uh, uh, verse 4, and Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 6. All right, the next one is, this too shall pass. That's in the Bible, right? Though popularly believed to be a Bible verse and sometimes argued to have originated with King Solomon, this phrase never actually appears in any translation of the Bible. Though we may never know for sure who first uttered the now famous phrase, one of the earliest recorded instances of it goes back to a proverb recorded by the medieval Persian Sufi poet Attar of Nishapar. The story tells of an uh, ancient uh, Middle Eastern king who had such intense mood swings that he finally asked for the help of a group of wise men to help him to get a grip and to find balance. The wise man went away to ponder how they might best help to, uh, to soothe the king, and when they returned, they presented him with a ring. The ring, they said, explained, they, or they explained, had a phrase engraved on it that would bring him happiness when he was sad and can even balance out his times of extreme happiness with a little bit of sadness, thus keeping him in a sort of perpetual emotional middle ground. And on a, on, upon examining the ring, the king found it engraved with the words, this too shall pass. All right, let's move on to number 14. Jesus drank from the Holy Grail at the Last Supper. So, although Scripture does mention, the Bible does mention in passing that Jesus drank from a cup at the Last Supper, there is nothing at all to indicate that said cup was in any way holy or even that it remained in the possession of any of Jesus' followers. Most of the lore attached to what would become known as the Holy Grail was invented as a plot device for use in the legends of King Arthur. The Grail's earliest recorded mention occurs in an unfinished romance entitled Percival, the Story of the Grail, by 12th century French poet uh, Cretan de Torres in, uh, uh, in his earliest forms. However, the Grail was not a, even a cup, but a serving tray. And throughout the years, it would also appear in other legendary incarnations, ranging from a plate used to catch uh, Christ's blood during the crucifixion to a precious stone that fell from the sky. So, not in the Bible. And lastly is uh, 15, and that is God works in mysterious ways. You certainly heard people say that quite a few times. And though the Bible doesn't necessarily discount the mysterious, stealthy ways of God, it never actually acknowledges them by way of this popular phrase either. The term was actually coined by two great songwriters rather than uh, biblical prophets. The first was a guy named William Cowper, who used the phrase, God moves in mysterious ways, in a popular English hymn in 1773. And the second was, well, Bono. Uh, and he stated that, quote, she moves in mysterious ways, end quote, uh, which refers not to the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, who he has always imagined as feminine, but to all women in general. Okay, so that's the end of the list. How did you do? Many people believe that many of these things are, in fact, in the Bible, but they are not, or not at all. So why do many people think they are? 
because they have not and do not read the Bible. They believe what they are told without checking, and if they checked, they would see that they have been lied to. My recommendation actually is for everyone to read the Bible and read it end to end and take meticulous notes as you go and note any contradictions or things that seem to be unbelievable or, uh, or odd. And I can almost guarantee you that once you go through that process, it might take a couple of times, but after you do, you will become an atheist just like me. All right, that is it for this week's Bible Study with Atheist Mike, and that's it for the episode this week. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll close out the episode. Welcome back. And unfortunately, it is the end of the episode this week. So I'd like to close out this week's episode with what I think is good news. Uh, and that is that the number of black people enrolling in top universities is on the rise. Uh, but like I have said about things like this before, I do not believe that a college education is a necessity for every black person. But it does remove one of the many barriers to success in America. Also, I would think that the best model for the type of people that we need to be to fight our battles is the warrior scholar. And uh, that model uh, is a highly educated black person that is willing to fight for justice and equality. So I do believe that the fact that um, uh, that uh, black enrollment in higher education is on the rise is a good thing. And so here's the story that I'd like to end with. The number of black men and women accepted at top U.S. universities has increased last year compared to 2020, according to the annual survey of the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education. It should be noted that progress has been substantially uh, has, has has been substantially in the past decades. Um, in 2021, a, uh, 18 highly ranked universities have first-year classes that were more than 10% black. The uptake of the African-Americans seems to stem primarily from the desire of higher educational institutions to increase diversity on their campuses, which I don't necessarily think that that is a good thing, but um, it, it is still good that uh, more blacks are being accepted into these schools. So black student enrollment at the nation's top universities and colleges is also an important indicator that educational equality in the country is moving in the right direction, the article says. The U.S. Department of Education figures indicate that the number of African-Americans pursuing a college education has increased significantly in the last 50 years. According to the dissertation of Crawford Rutgers, education is viewed as a, quote, a catalyst for positive change in view of its benefits to the individuals and the communities. Duster also confirms that it opens the doors for, for employment uh, and to um, economic control. Du Bois, in his work, The Education of Black People, credits higher education in the production of character that would produce educated individuals to help develop the black community. So this year's data revealed that six universities saw an increase of over 40% in black first-year enrollment, while the uh, Carnegie Mellon University nearly doubled its acceptance of African-American students. 
It should also be noted that overall enrollments were down at most schools for the 20, uh, 2020-2021 academic year. And that was due to the pandemic. Uh, and many students took um, out a gap, uh, uh, a gap year that year. On the other hand, Notre Dame reported that the increase of its first year enrollments among blacks increased because of active efforts in recruitment and expansion of financial assistance. So, yes, these factors can increase the participation of African-Americans at highly ranked universities, uh, universities and colleges in the nation. So it is a good it is good news that more black people are, are being accepted into top tier colleges and universities. But we cannot expect that those schools will always reach out to us uh, to try to recruit us to en- to enroll. We need to be proactive in pursuing our education and we need to consider historically about black schools as well. Our students certainly need to think about the best school and the area of study that is going to be necessary for them to achieve their personal goals and their and to achieve personal success. But they need to also consider their role in advancing our race and in creating a society that is for is fair for all. So I applaud that um, the uh, that that blacks are being accepted into top uh, tier schools at an increasing rate. Uh, but with the caveats that I noted that we need to also focus on our historically black colleges and universities, and we need to make sure that we are looking beyond our own selfish interests as we make those uh, decisions. All right, that is it uh, for the closing segment and for the episode this week. So I'd like to remind you the intro music is Transcend by KIRK. The outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple, uh, Google, Stitcher, and Amazon, and many other platforms. But if it's not on the platform where you typically get your podcast, send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com, and I'll be sure to get it added. Once it's there, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if it is a feature of your platform, give me a five-star review. And I leave you with these words from Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without the thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks for listening, everyone, and until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.